Okay, test, test. Hey, thank God this machine is working again. I had some kind of driver issue with the microphone. For some reason, my MacBook could not really recognize the microphone properly and didn't really record clean. So, well, once you restart the MacBook, everything seems to be just fine. Well, that's at least something positive, isn't it? And something more positive for today is we're going to talk about Gabriel once again. We're going to talk about my Gabriel, your Peter Gabriel. But a little update in the meantime. I wanted to do this recording a bit sooner. But, you know, unfortunately, um, things don't look very well these days. Um, everything is getting much more expensive in Germany. It's not just, um, of course, other parts in the world just the same. I don't want to make this a special Germany-only occasion. But it is surely, uh, you know, one of the most disturbing things at the moment, that prices are being just uh, skyrocketing through the atmosphere for food. Um, it's not uh, so much that uh, specific items like, let's say, pizza or, uh, or potato chips and stuff like that, you know, milk, butter, cheese... Uh, it's, it's not like these are extremely high prices at the moment. They're, they're not really. But the problem is when you go shopping and you pay everything extra for everything that you buy, or at least not, not necessarily 100% of all the items available in a shop. But what I've, men what I've noticed personally is that um, oil, of course, like some news outlets have been reporting, oil has become extremely expensive, which is funny. Um, we're talking about olive oil here, okay, cooking oil or um, other products of, of the oil industry, food uh, in, in particular. We're not talking about gasoline here. That's a completely different story. But it has become, uh, got to sit here properly, it has become uh, super high to a point where I think I for my oil, what I like to to use my my products cost normally around 350 369 and right now we're close to five bucks per bottle okay olive oil the same i think the standard products normally lie around 350 360 they also have been risen to 480 490 a bottle uh, which is insane for one bottle it's enough but if you need more you know it's like you pay a fortune then you pay a few cents extra for cheese at some uh, deals anyway. Milk, I haven't checked right now. I haven't bought anything because I still have some at home. Um, I've seen that the prices for nuts have been much more expensive uh, right now. What hasn't uh, at least exploded this far, which is interesting to me because I'm, I'm going to buy some supplies there and some, some rations for, uh, let's say, the next few months... <laughs> is canned food, uh, surprisingly so. Everything that has been pre-cooked and then stored in a can, um, locked up for years and years of, of time to be preserved, um, those prices haven't actually exploded at all, at least not from what I have seen so far. There are products like, you know, ravioli in, uh, in a can and a nice tomato sauce, for example. This kind of stuff. There's a typical manufacturer in Germany for. Uh, I'm not sure if it is a German manufacturer, but I think it, uh, at some point 
it, it might be a German company. Um, one can normally cost around two bucks. And I haven't seen these prices rise anywhere. I mean, if I'm wrong, they might have been maybe 180 before that or 189. So that is not really um, specifically expensive. Also, canned fish hasn't really exploded in prices, at least not in my region. So um, what has exploded instead, which is more remarkable to me now, you pay for every pizza around three bucks. Uh, especially, you know, typical brands like Wagner or um, Dr. Oetker in, in, in Germany, you pay for those pizzas normally around 260 270 now you pay three bucks and sometimes more which is ludicrous like it like i said again if you're just looking for one or two items it doesn't really matter that much your wallet is not going to explode but buying like just your normal rations for a month that's going to be exponentially more expensive and i wonder how long that's going to take until it will settle down if it will ever settle down a lot of people are fearing these prices are here to stay for a couple of years that's not really something dear christ anyone is looking forward to i am having a bottle of water today i gotta keep myself hydrated i got a headache um i wanted to go out today because it's a beautiful beautiful day the sun is shining now for days on end it's still kind of cold though we only have nine degrees today and during the nighttime we have like minus five degrees so that's pretty cold at least for me still because you know basement and all that <laughs> that is pretty cold um it is however very very beautiful in in terms of the lighting conditions the sun is just really highlighting all the forests and landscape around us it looks beautiful every time you walk outside and i really can't get enough of it so i'm going to jump on my bicycle after this podcast and just hit the road and i think it will be the right time till then right now it's it's noon actually i just had a uh, very fulfilling breakfast <laughs> i am sitting here once again, um, talking to these unknown people somewhere online, maybe who share a thought or two of mine or have nothing else to do and just listen to me babble. And I have been babbling about Peter Gabriel um, much, maybe not enough. I'd like to continue that. And today, um, instead of just you know diving into the live albums, I think it, it's pretty redundant to do that because uh, if you want the ultimate experience of his work, um, just go for a live, really. It's, it's, for most of his, his, his songs, live uh, coverage is pretty much the only way to go to actually get a glimpse of what the atmosphere is of, of Gabriel's music. And the albums are like a reference of his work. Of course, it is, in the end, the, um, not really the masterpiece, in, at least in most, um, in, in, in most songs. But it's, it's something he did. It's something that was published. It's what he started with uh, concerning music and the albums. And, uh, you know, live, it's always a different experience. And I think it goes for everyone from Brian Ferry to, I don't know, Michael Jackson, I suppose. You know, that kind of stuff. And uh, it's, uh, it's always much more realistic and uh, more vivid to experience the voice, the band, 
the uh, the entire acoustic, of course, and the visual aspects of a concert instead of just listening to uh, to a studio album, which I wouldn't say necessarily that studio albums are static, but in comparison to live performances, they sure are, at least most of them anyway. I think uh, one good example where the difference between the album and and uh, the the live atmosphere has become, at least in recent years, very obvious is London Grammar, from yeah you've guessed it England, and um, it's a pretty young group making uh, more chill out based music I would say a slightly electronic or an electronic mix of guitar and um, and vocal effects, uh, and they're very emotional uh, people it seems very emotional music that they have written and composed it's it's beautiful to listen to it's not for everyone i would say that it's it's really for those who like to doze off and just dream in in a completely different sphere in in the universe instead of just you know listening to your typical classic rock and pop songs this is something that can be absorbed in a completely different fashion compared to rock music for example now i'm not trying to to, to trash rock music, of course not. I'm just merely showing you a, a very high emotional difference here of how music can be conceived and um, digested, obviously. And when it comes to Gabriel's So album, well, you know, that's where we got stuck last time. I wanted to talk about the, uh, the live um, aspects of the album before that, of the security album or Peter Gabriel number four. But I think I've mentioned in all those uh, hours of talking, <laughs> I think I've mentioned the most strongest um, audio points, the strongest songs that you should look out for if you want to look for live music anyway and trying to get you know, inside of Peter Gabriel's um, creative mind. Uh, I think that's, that's enough coverage. But the So album is where everything really goes into the stratosphere um, because... Of course, as you might might know, or m- most of you will most definitely know, it is the most successful album he has ever put out to date. And it's, it's a success that most likely will never be covered again by the same artist. Um, he did try in the album Us, which is my personal favorite, like I said before. Um, there's also some really astonishingly well-written and uh, executed material on the Up album, but the So album was, like I said before, and many other people have stated over and over again, the So album is the definition of Gabriel's work for so many people. Now that we can argue about that, you know, it's, it doesn't need to be correct or right, but it's, it sure is a, a landmark in the music industry, especially back in the day when in 1986 this album hit the market. And it was a nationwide success. It was a, an international phenomenon. It was a huge deal on MTV, and we all know why. And that's also the time where I got more, um, I think, not really obsessed, but I got attention to his, his work. I, it, it became uh, sort of, um, some, you know, these, these, these or uh, these, these, these earworms that we like to talk about. I'm not sure if that term really exists in English. It's just, in, German, in Germany it does. It's just a song that you just can't really forget for days and days to come or years even. And that's when Sludgehammer pretty much um, established uh, its existence 
and uh, phenomenal success, really, in, in, in the music industry. But we're, we're going to come to we we are going to come to that a bit later. There is a downside to this, and I think you might know what I'm getting at when it comes to this song. And no, it has nothing to do with the sex implica- implications in the song. That's pretty much obvious, I think, to those you know never really noticed. Um, you didn't pay attention to the lyrics that much. You paid more attention to the rhythm and the sound than really to what Gabriel was saying. And I don't blame you because, you know, a lot of people do. And it's it goes with every artist, any song that you, you listen to. Not everybody tries to analyze and focus really on the lyrics, but this stuff here is really on, on the nose. So, you know, if you don't know that Sludgehammer is supposed to be a penis, then I'm sorry. <laughs> no one No one can help you. Uh, yeah, well, where was I? Oh, yeah, right. So, technically, this album here, um, where should we start, actually, by analyzing, or at least talking about what this album brings to us, at least uh, for the everyone who was involved with uh, with this, this album? Of course, Gabriel um, wrote most of the songs, uh, as usual, himself. He's pretty much the brainstorming guy behind all of these these uh, projects of, of his own, at least most of them anyway. Uh, we know that Tony Levin is, of course, uh, always there, always present, just like David Rhodes is. So, you know, bass guitar is safe and the guitar anyway. And Jerry Morata is back um, as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a drummer. Manukache this time around also, I think first time in a studio album, if I'm not mistaken. And Daniel Lanois, or Lan- Lanois, Lanois. It's 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 written. I think Lanois is, is 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 spoken. I'm not sure if he is French, but I read it somewhere. Never mind. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he's also uh, he's he's producing the album. Or I'm not sure if Gabriel produced it himself or if it was Daniel entirely but he's also responsible for some guitar work and a trumpet of sorts and other musicians showing up here as a guest vocal appearance would be Richard T in piano uh, Stuart Copeland also as a as a drummer Larry Klein as a bass player uh, Simon Clark on keyboards the famous El Shankar on violin uh, Wine Jackson, also uh, a trumpet or whatever instrument was used. I don't even know which one it is. I'm not really into all those details. But of course we get Kate Bush in Don't Give Up. Um, we got Yusu Endur, uh, who is um, doing background vo- uh, background vocals for In Your Eyes. P.P. Arnold, uh, background vocals. Jim Kerr backing vocals, Michael Bean backing vocals, Laurie Anderson is a co-writer, I think, co-author of This Is The Picture, Bill Laswell, also This Is The Picture, playing bass, and Nile Rogers guitar in This Is The Picture, probably working with Laurie Anderson previously, I'm just assuming, I don't really know. And this album was done in Gabriel's old home, as far as I can tell, in his studio, Ashcombe House. Now, there is a legend here, and I read that somewhere in the book, and I heard in an interview some time ago on online 
when they celebrated the 25th anniversary of this album, which I also saw in theaters and I saw the live concert, the Back to Front tour, it was stated that Gabriel is, of course, extremely slow and easy to distract when he's trying to work on something, which is very annoying to everyone around him, I suppose. And he doesn't mean it in a bad way. He just he doesn't work like that. That's not who he is. It's, it's not his... his well, it is his fault, I guess, but it's it's just something that cannot be changed, and especially not now since he's over 70 years old, uh, 72 to be precise, and well, that's just a part of his, his persona. He's a very gentle man, as many people have stated, and he's also just very, very slow <laughs> in, in development and movement, I suppose, especially his working pace could be a bit a bit faster for everyone involved, but, you know, everyone else has got something to do. David Rose is making money on the side. Tony Levin, obviously, been on the road for many, many years. And uh, I think everyone else uh, participating in his programs and projects, they also have a secondary income or maybe a main income. And the Gabriel gig is just something they do on the side, which by this time frame and this time scale makes the most sense. And... It was, it was reported that during the production of the album, Gabriel really liked to be distracted and wanted to move away from it a little bit, just, you know, do something else, but not making music, not working. And they put pressure on him by saying, come on, Peter, you got you to gotta do this. We're, we're so close to finishing the album. You, gotta, you have to put a song out here, <laughs> or at least another one and this one and that one. And he refused, I think, where he got really stubborn and... and uh, it was told that uh, uh, that some people, uh, parts of his friends, have pushed him into a barn on his property and locked the gate. And afterwards, it was told, I'm not sure if it's true, but I, I read that, that Gabriel was so furious, he took the door, that large wooden door, and pulled it off its, its off the hinges. He didn't tore it off, he just pulled it off. And threw the door away and shocked everyone around who witnessed that, that uh, you know, force of nature just doing that. And he said in a very polite way, please do not lock me up. <laughs> and he continued working on the album and realized, okay, I got to do this. So uh, that much needed to be said. Also, this um, the So album is the first album, as you might know, that even carries a title instead of the old titles just using his, his own name. And I think they also, I, I don't think they pressured him that much. There's a legend where uh, the label called him and said, look, we need a title for your album. Do you have any ideas or, or can you give us one? And he just said, so, question mark on the phone, supposedly. And they said, okay, we can take that. <laughs> because no one used a title like that before. And, you know, everybody likes to invent something like a good phrase or uh, a topic that is connected to a song of course and gabriel just he doesn't give a fuck you know he doesn't care so <laughs> it became just so and so what and whatnot and that's it that's the running title and it became a household name after uh, the album debuted and while we're talking about the album and what you can expect from it if you've, if you've never heard or listened to the so album for me personally, the first song introducing on the album 
uh, as an opener is Red Rain, which is extremely powerful. It's a beautiful track, and um, I've met one person in my life who was a Gabriel fan on a concert. And that one guy had a huge, huge dislike of the song. He fucking hated it. He didn't even want to talk about it, and I really do not know why. I think it's a great track. It was inspired by uh, by an author. His name is uh, Wolfgang uh, Tilgner. I think he's German. Wolfgang Tilgner. So um, he was he he talked. You know he he was writing stories of poetry at at some point in his life, where he uh, described people how they deal with emotions and. Uh, distancing themselves from it and stuff like that, just things that we people do. And Gabriel took that as an inspiration because he was reading that stuff uh, quite a lot. And he also read something from uh, uh, some poetry from a woman who killed herself. Her name is Anne Sexton. And that became uh, the song Mercy Street, which was dedicated to that woman, actually, and her work, which is one of the reasons why that, that song is so unbelievably brilliant really it's it's i think for me personally mercy street is the strongest most most dark and and most uh, emotional track on the entire album but we we're gonna get to that later red rain is quite an interesting act to witness even the music video is breathtaking at some point especially with those black and white images being shot and uh, Gabriel's face just partially visible through those uh, lens effects that they've done, just highlighting certain points of his face and just moving that light around and, you know, just playing around with light and shadow. I'm not sure which artist actually came up with the idea, but it looks fantastic. And um, it is, it's it's a bit louder. It has, of course, it's faster. It has a lot of energy and it is at some point even a slightly depressing, I would say, because the song is in the end a very sad song. And um, to me, still a mystery why someone wants to dislike it. And I think it's still underrated after all these years, just like his his other uh, single that was also underrated, Digging in the Dirt, which is a very serious and uh, unfortunately a very... Uh, necessary song in the music industry because not enough people talk about this kind of stuff and he did it really well he he, he mastered his voice to up absolute perfection on that track live i gotta say not not that much i think the studio version is much better than what i've heard live in all these years and that's just my personal taste i i think it's it's probably because of the arrangement and production on on that track but We'll, we'll get to that a different time. I just wanted to mention it. And Red Rain, I like to make a direct comparison to it when, when he plays it live. It has become almost an anthem in his career. I mean, Red Rain has been played to death uh, live, just like uh, In Your Eyes has been played, you know, a gazillion times or Sledgehammer. But the emotional aspect and the darkness and depth of, of this song is emotionally very challenging and triggering for many. And I think as an opener, you couldn't really go wrong with anything like that. And I'm, I'm glad that if you pop in that disc or you, you, you lay your vinyl for the first time uh, listening to this track, it's really, it's gripping. It really gets you right away, the energy, especially that drum loop. 
uh, in the beginning when the song starts, um, you know, accompanied by these high hits and it's or no high, high hats. I'm sorry, but you you get my point. If you if you have listened to this track, you know what I'm talking about. It's really it's very personal, very powerful, and uh, it remains one of the, his his golden greats, I suppose. More water. Never go outside with uh, being dehydrated. Never go outside if you're doing sports without water. <laughs> I learned that the hard way. Mm. Anyway, Red Rain is still one of my favorites, needless to say. The second song, which we can probably butcher a little bit here, is Sledgehammer. Now, um, okay, where should I start? First of all, this is the song of all of his songs that made an example of his talent, of his work, of his creativity, of his humor, his uh, open openness to sex, um, his, his um, affiliation to soul music. All of that is just in there, even funk. But the song itself was never or would have never been as successful as it was without the help of the music video. The music video was that one thing, that multiple artist project with stop motion animation, clay animation, this kind of stuff. Um, it is still up to this day one of the most creative or even best artistic videos ever, ever created. And it's a blessing for Gabriel and his career. It's also a blessing for everyone involved creating this uh, masterpiece. And don't even get me started. I don't know these artists, really. I've, said, I've seen the making of a, a few times, um, especially with all those uh, slow motion shots and how much patience Gabriel really has and brings to, to the table when these projects occur, just like in dig, Digging in the Dirt, if I may. Um, there were scenes where snails were crawling over his face, and that was really done with a time-lapse uh, shot. And he did endure all of these shots without even complaining, without complaining. Amazing, absolutely amazing. And in Sledgehammer, well, there was a lot of makeup going on. There was, you know, painting in blue, for example, for one of these scenes. And uh, that uh, locomotive running around his head, then, you know, uh, bringing, his, his, bringing his hairdo to a complete mess and, and trying to simulate wind and uh, velocity and all that stuff. And it takes a huge amount of time. And then afterwards, of course, or in between those shots, you have the clay animation, which is uh, always fascinating to watch. But this is very artistic, what we're, what we're dealing with here. And later on, we see some dancing dead chickens, which um, has, again, something to do with sex, I suppose. <laughs> Maybe getting naked, who knows. Anyway, um, the song is good. It is good. It's not my favorite. Um, by far. I think Sledgehammer is fun to listen to. And that's where things get complicated, especially for fans. Because as much as we enjoy uh, Gabriel's success, and we really wish that he would continue doing things like this, or at least not necessarily the Sledgehammer thing, but continuing uh, gaining success, gaining momentum in the music industry. But 
as a 70-year-old, there's only so much you can do, I suppose. I'm not saying that he's not creative anymore. I would never say that. But, you know, I think his time is somehow gone. His momentum in, in the music industry, his... He, he was in the lights, you know, he was in, he, at the absolute height of his career, uh, never made as much money as Phil Collins did, for example, but it's not mainstream, again, okay? Um, mainstream music and having a talent for that kind of stuff, that is uh, Phil Collins' strong suit, and mainstream is boring for Peter Gabriel, so why would he waste his life doing that if he really wants to do something else? And uh, Sledgehammer was supposed to be not only a song about sex, but it was more of a homage to to soul music in general. And one of his, his idols um, was Otis Redding. And he, uh, I think he bought his, his records when he was way younger and always enjoyed his, his music a lot. I personally still have to listen into Otis, what he did and what he, what he sounded like, you know, also uh, rhythm-wise and arrangements, if he just improvised his music or if it was, uh, you know, very carefully crafted. I don't know. It, but it, it sure, uh, it, it, it comes off as blatantly obvious that he is very focused in, in this world and on to, to soul music and everything that he listens to. He describes himself as some kind of form of soul or soul-based music. Uh, pretty much uh, one of the reasons why he wanted world music to be more publicly open to make people realize it's all about the soul. No matter where you come from, no matter what kind of music you, you listen to or make, whatever instrument you, uh, you master, whatever culture you come from, music always speaks one language and that is the language of the soul. And that is something Gabriel wanted to advertise. I'm just trying to put that out there, just... Understand that this man knows exactly what music is and what music can do and sometimes, sometimes should do. Not just make people happy, but make you think, make you maybe a little bit sad, which is uh, moody music and, you know, darker music is, I think, Gabriel's strong suit by far, really by far. It's, it's, uh, he can do happy music, but... You know what good does it does it do if if his his true talents really lie somewhere in the darker regions of the human soul? And I'm glad that he always followed his gut and just did what he wanted to do in the end. But um, like I said, um, success-wise, this this song catapulted his album to uh, over 10 million sold copies, maybe even more, because it's it's tough to get the absolutely accurate numbers, but we know that it was the landmark of all landmarks in his career. So um, over 10, 10 million by far, for sure. Maybe 15, but, you know, I think the numbers might be a bit um, eluding here at this point. It could be a very dark figure we're talking about. But needless to say, um, there was cash to be made. He had fans. And also the band members said um, back in the day before... Um, they became that famous when they just left Genesis and did like Peter Gabriel one, you know, the car, some life touring, the construction tour, uh, security tour back then, you know, from the fourth album and all that. Um, they said, you know, they had very sophisticated, serious fans who just uh, wanted to see Gabriel do his thing and follow his, his interesting lyrics and music. And when the So album became that famous, suddenly they had pretty girls standing 
very close to the stage, you know, and in and, 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 and tight clothes and like throwing bras all over the place and, you know, throwing flowers on stage and stuff like that, just sending kisses and, you know, flirting with, with the band and with Gabriel. And that was new. That was not something that was very common in the older days. It just started really with, uh, with the So album and was continuing a little bit with the, uh, with the Us album, I think, at least in, in, in terms of fame, thanks to songs like Steam and uh, probably um, Digging in the Dirt and Come Talk to Me. Although Come Talk to Me is not really a commercial success. But needless to say, it was a very personal song, just like everything else on that album which is, again, why it's my favorite. But we're still here stuck on the So album, and rightfully so, because it is still <laughs> something we need to talk about. Um, Sledgehammer, I remember listening to that song when I was a kid. It was, I always enjoyed his vocals a lot more than I did the rhythm and the melody of the song. Like I said, it's not really my favorite. It's a great party song. It's not necessarily something you should dance to or can dance to, but you can if you want to, you, if, if you get my drift. It's a tongue-in-cheek song about sexual behavior between men and women, or between any uh, sex, really, just to, you know, just to clarify that once again. Um, that's all this song really is, is a fun song. And it has become mainstream popular with... Uh, the, the soul aspect and the poppiness of it all, the way it was played. You can't really compare the Soul album to anything he did before or afterwards, to be fair. This is the closest thing that he did towards mainstream. Or an album, let's put it this way, an album that would have been uh, recognized as mainstream instead of an artistic piece of, uh, of music history. You know, it, it, you only survive in the music industry long enough or become relevant if you can actually mingle and mix somehow with some song or some success in the top 10 somewhere around, you know, the, 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 the chart universe, which is something I really hate, to be honest. But um, we can all understand where the success is coming from. And um, I would say rightfully so, of course, because Gabe, but um, realistically speaking and compared to everything else that we've heard over the years, especially during the 80s. I mean, the 80s were a very creative era where uh, artists all over the world really uh, participated and contributed to the music industry by, by being not only experimental, but just risky and creative with electronic music, synth, uh, synthesizer pop or synth pop, uh, wave pop during the 80s of, uh, you know, various London bands, I guess, or England-based bands. You had David Bowie, you had, um, you had, of course, still the Rolling Stones somewhere in between uh, all these artists, and you had um, Kate Bush becoming uh, tremendously successful as well during the years. You had um, Sinead O'Connor, you, uh, you had Bruce Springsteen, uh, Elton John, uh, so many different artists. I don't want to even start naming them. Not just Madonna, Michael Jackson, the the obvious, you know, top of the pops or stuff like that. But you had like one hit wonders, like um, Living in a Box. Okay, you had Level Forty Two. You had um, Camouflage, which was a German band. I didn't even know. I just recently found out because I like listening to their songs, The Last Commandment, and. Um, 
what, 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 what was the other one? Love is a Shield, yeah. If you don't know these songs, Google them, find them on YouTube. Love is a Shield is a beautiful song. And it always sounded like they were English, but they're German. <laughs> what a shocker. What a shocker. Mm. Well, anyway, Sledgehammer was a fun song for me as a child. And growing up in Canada back then, I did always feel very happy and, let's say, energetic when I heard this song, especially because of his vocals when he started screaming or shouting these high notes out during, during the song. You know, this, this will be my testimony, and then, wow, that's just, I love that shit. It's beautiful. Anyway, third song, to cut this short, um, Don't Give Up, is, for some people, I think one of the cheesiest songs ever written. At least I heard that many, many, many times from so many people. But it's also considered to be a, um, a life-saving uh, song, because... Eventually, according to a source I read, there was a person who uh, approached Gabriel and said, look, if it wasn't for that song, I would have killed myself. And that just proves that, you know, music in general can be a very powerful emotional toolkit to help you overcome fears, maybe, or overcome sadness and depression in one shape or the other. And I think if people would be just really... Just completely isolated from music and the possibility to work on yourself or work through your issues without any kind of help like like music or the arts in general, I think we would have a tough time being alive. You know, and I think music can be a very good method of doing that, even therapy, to be honest. I think music is a wonderful form of therapy. And Don't Give Up is a pretty straightforward a song about people um, losing their jobs, becoming unemployed, and fearing the future, don't know how to survive or provide for their family. So that's, it's pretty, uh, it doesn't get more, more straightforward than this. The lyrics are very, um, I think, easy to understand, and it was purposed like this. I think it was designed and written like that to make it very obvious what the song is about. And this... Um, the song was covered also by a bunch of people, I think. And the original is, of course, with the video, can be seen, where, you know, Peter and, and Kate Bush are hugging themselves or hugging each other and just spinning around during that video. And that was, I think, the most famous, uh, famous version of that video. There's, there's a different one, I think, available. I can't really remember what it was. I've only seen it one time in my life. But the official version that became the Kate Bush and, and Peter Gabriel duet in front of the camera is um, the most memorable, I think. And also, um, having Kate Bush on the album is a great treat. I think no one else really uh, does it better. Paula Cole, during this, the Secret World tour, was phenomenal with her vocals doing doing Don't Give Up with Peter together. I think that is um, the second best version of the song that was ever performed for me personally. But the album version, nonetheless, is really... Um, it's, it's a good song, I would say. It has become, just because it's a ballad, it has become a household name. And then, you know, millions of people love the song just, just for the sake of the lyrics and 
the honesty of, of this song. Not necessarily because of, uh, of Peter. Many people thought that it, this is a Kate Bush-only song, but I think it was really written from Gabriel with maybe Kate, Kate Bush as a co-author, but I personally, um, from, from my understanding, is that she just, she was friends, I think, with him and wanted to help him out with uh, doing this, this, this track more emotionally because without a second voice, I think the song wouldn't be as powerful. And um, when I say things like that, helping out, I do understand Kate Bush is a phenomenal artist. I am not undermining her capabilities, and I don't like people claiming it's sexist to say stuff like that for a woman to help out a man during music. Give me a break. I've read stupid comments on Facebook you would not believe. People just can't get along, really, when it comes to music. You say one thing, and people take it personally and think you're attacking them. It's insane. Okay? It's his song she was helping out, end of the fucking story. Just want to put that out there. People make me nuts. Everybody's entitled now to say something and, and, I don't know, just twist the truth around. Always. Every day. Speaking of, of, of um, voicing your opinion, the song That Voice Again is number four on the album, and it never became a single. I think it is, it is a more a typical, mm, I would say typical Gabriel song on the album, a typical moody track, where uh, even melodically I would say a very moody track, which didn't help I, I think to bring the album to a more popular state it's not as catchy as sledgehammer or red rain or don't give up nor big time for that matter it's a it's a subtle song something that is um i think also important to address that it's always about the um interactivity between two people and their emotions and how they deal with uh with emotional connection possibly even even loss of, of, of human life or loss of contact to someone. It's I think it's safe to say that this is pretty much everything that needs to be said about this this song. I do like the melody. I love the way he sings on Hear That Voice Again. And um, there is a, a mid-part, a mid-section of the song that is um, the most, uh, my, my personal favorite. Um, but... I don't want to dwell too much in, in, in this track alone. I don't think it does the album justice, really. I think it's a great track. Um, I personally would have said to replace that voice again with the B-side track that didn't make it to the album, Don't Break This Rhythm. And I personally love that track much more than I do this one. I think Don't Break This Rhythm is, of course, yes, much more experimental. It's been designed probably as a vocal practice, I would assume, but it's also about, once again, um, human interaction, uh, how, how bonding between people can be important and how, how the emotional value of, of such an event would build up. And I think the song does it pretty, pretty justice, at least to me personally. I don't know what the song might mean to you, but um, it, is, it is a phenomenal track. And I do remember ordering, before it was out of print, the Sledgehammer uh, single CD, the, the maxi CD, when it came out. And sometime later, during the 90s, I still got a print, the, the official print 
somewhere available that I could order in a shop that was way before uh, you know internet came came to be and Amazon existed. It was it was always let's go into the store and see what we can find. And I noticed that you know um, the single was missing in my collection. I just wanted to have it. And on that single there is uh, of course the the uh, radio edition of I Have the Touch. Again, this this track is found on so many singles. I mean, okay, we get it. He likes the track, but Don't Break This Rhythm is really something to look out for. It's a phenomenal piece of work. And um, if you can, um, try to get it or just Google it online, go on YouTube and look for Don't Break This Rhythm. That is a B-side track that I wish would have been on the album. I really do. That voice again is great, but that song is better. Um... Then, of course, uh, there comes In Your Eyes. Now, this is where it gets a bit tricky. Because the album was, of course, produced for vinyl and uh, music cassettes, uh, slightly a bit before the CD, the compact disc, actually made an impact on the market, and we all know how that went. Um, Because of, you know, choosing which songs go on side A and on side B, because of the time span that was necessary to bring uh, In Your Eyes to the album somewhere, it became the last track on side A, the fifth track. In the remastered version from 2002 and upwards, and the 25th anniversary edition from uh, 2012, um, yeah, I've been on tour during those days. It was amazing. It's like 10 fucking years ago. Yeah, anyway, um... In Your Eyes was supposed to be the, 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 the final track, the closing track of the album. And because of more convenience and digital technology, we got the album the way it was supposed to be, the, the way it was intended to be, at least according to Gabriel. Um, in the old days, for us at least, um, the original uh, vinyl or the vinyl copy on CD afterward, the, the, the vinyl transfer, as far as I know anyway, it remained that In Your Eyes was track five. And I still have a copy of that track somewhere. I think I have the vinyl too, but um, I have to look. I have the reprint, the reissue of the vinyl collection. I got the So album just behind me. I'll be right back. I just want to look on that personally, where that track has been split up. I guess it's also on side A, I suppose. Okay, okay, I just came back. You didn't notice because I have an awesome pause button. Um... With that reissue was from 2016, and it's standing in my shelf. Um, the fourth track, uh, that voice again, that's where they stopped. And, the, and it starts again with uh, In Your Eyes. No, not, sorry, Mercy Street first track on side B of the, or second LP, whatever. I'm, is it a double LP? No, I think it's a single LP. One, one side this, one side that. I haven't even opened it, it's still wrapped in foil. Um, I I have a record player, yes, but it's not connected to a stereo and the needle is missing. It's it's an old device. I I ordered once a needle just to try it out and it was unfortunately the wrong model. I had to send it back and I haven't been looking since and I wanted to to try to to use this this piece of technology, good old analog days. You can you really can't go wrong with analog. It's I love that stuff. It's mostly failsafe, in my opinion. Of course, the song, uh, the 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 sound. <clears throat> sorry, the sound quality is 
might might not be as clean and as as polished as digital re, digital releases these days. Okay, I, that might be true, but it doesn't have to be. You know, it doesn't really give. It doesn't add anything to the music itself. I think the analog days were good the way they were. Um, some stereo systems were just phenomenal in their power and um, uh, volume, let's say, of what you could actually blast through your room or in a hall and stuff like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be everything digital. It's just, it's nonsense. It's a, it's a market scheme to make money, of course. I understand that. And many people would prefer the new days of music instead of the old ones. But sound quality-wise... It doesn't do really that much that much justice to uh, old records like the So Album or or any other artist from the '80s. You know, just Duran Duran. I don't think it's necessary to have everything remastered to get a different kind of of sound quality. It's still the same song. Maybe uh, I would I would consider it possible that some instruments sound a bit more polished in newer uh, remastered versions compared to the old, you know, vinyl and cassette tapes. But uh, that really really depends how much it changes the song or the dynamic of the song, especially for you as a listener, when you're sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, this is something completely different. Then, okay, I buy that fucking theory. But personally, I haven't really noticed any difference like that. At least not to my ears anyway. Slightly polished, yeah, sure, I get that. But it's not like a a, a jump in dimensions. (laughs) No, it's not. Anyway, um, in your eyes, yeah, it, it has been played to death. I still love singing the song in my car, and I listen to the track um, many times, to be honest. I don't really know exactly where to put that song in my personal life. To be honest, I never found anything really substantial, and um, I'm, I'm I'm lost for words almost. I, I I've never had a moment in my life where I said, "This is the moment where I would would choose that song to that specific person to this specific moment in time, this experience." That hasn't happened. That's not really a song. I love the song. But it has no emotional, um, personal connection for me personally. I'd rather say that Red Rain does a lot more, even Sledgehammer, really. But In Your Eyes is more like a, a, a movie song, a piece of soundtrack to me personally, and was also used in, in a movie. I just can't remember the title, but you know what I mean when, when you see it. I haven't seen the movie myself. I just know that South Park made fun of that movie and they used um, some some phrase in some episode where a kid said to another kid, if you want to impress a, a girl, what you got to do is, 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 you know, stand in front of, of her house, in front of the window, uh, turn, turn up your stereo system or a boom box and play a Peter Gabriel song to convince her or just to gain uh, attention. And they used, instead of In Your Eyes, like in the movie, uh, they used Shock the Monkey, <laughs> which was a great touch, really. And the reason for that is I read that Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of South Park, are actually more Peter Gabriel fans than Phil Collins, let's say. 
they have voiced, they, I don't think they have this great dislike for Phil Collins, but they really never said anything negative about uh, Gabriel and never made fun of him that much. They, they just really love his work, you know, and I, th I think that's cool for guys who usually just trash everything that they really want to criticize and just have fun with, like the Catholic Church or Michael Jackson and political issues, Corona now. But there's always room for Gabriel, you know. In one of the, the last episodes that I've seen, um, the song, it was about the Ukraine war, I think. Uh, the song Games Without Frontiers was used in, 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 the, in the South Park episode. And I love that, that just Gabriel's work lives on in even weird and, and, and creative, unmatched series like South Park can live on and gets reused. I think that's beautiful. And... Just as a side note, um, what to look out for. In case you don't watch South Park, then forget it. But it is my kind of humor. I do like it. Um, anyway, In Your Eyes is... It, it is one of these songs per, where I think the term hope could be applied most to that. Not, not just the term love. It's, I think it's more about hope, really. To, um, to look in someone's eyes and see the future to look in someone's eyes and think there is something for me in the long run. You know, that gives you hope, really. That's something that that will fuel your, your dreams of maybe finding someone not just for you personally in your life, like real love, true love, whatever that might be, or, or the one, you know, the famous phrase that we like to use over and over again, the right one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm very cynical when it comes to that because it's not true. But that's just me talking here anyway. But um, it's it, it's not that the song doesn't do anything good for me personally. I do like it, like I said. I, I love the live performances. I think live, In Your Eyes, was best in the Secret World Tour. It was the longest performance and it was musically um, a great achievement in arrangement and performance on stage compared to the Soul Tour. Not that the Soul Tour was bad, but In Your Eyes was... It became like uh, the largest anthem for Gabriel's uh, solo work over the years, not just Red Rain, but since In Your Eyes was one of the fan favorites to close a concert with. It's, um, it's something that will always be remembered as such, and one of the most beautiful love songs ever written, according to some people. Um, I could agree, but to me personally, it's not just a love song. But that's a different story. Um, then comes Mercy Street, number six. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, my mouth is so dry. Mm. Mercy Street. That is a song... Man, when I heard that the first time, that was something I knew. This is really the essence of what Gabriel, Gabriel likes to write and produce in forms of music. This is fantastic. Um, like I said before, um, Mercy Street is based or inspired by, the, uh, um, by an author, a writer and, and, and poet, Anne Sexton, who supposedly committed suicide many years ago. And I think she had three attempts. First two were minor injuries, I think. And the third one could not be stopped. 
That's where she succeeded in ending her life. And it's unclear to me as to why she was suffering from depression that much. I think she was in a psychiatric ward. She was in care. And for some reason, she still uh, succeeded in killing herself. I think if somebody really wants to kill themselves, that there's nothing you can do about that except stopping them by brute force. But that's it. You have to convince these people not to do it. And in order to do that, they have to convince themselves that this solution is wrong. If somebody is really heavily determined and focused on death and, and want to die, there's really nothing you can do. And uh, that's something I learned. Um, basically, there was, uh, there was a person in my life, um, not so much in my own life, but he was a relative of my ex-wife and he killed himself. You know, it was, it was her grandfather. And he was one of the most kindest people I've met. He was very gentle, very uh, easygoing, down-to-earth, decent man. Um, he had a good life, you know, he had a, a kind of a respectable job. Um, he provided well, and he was in love with his wife, but she was not in love with him that much. That much I know, that much I still remember. That's not the reason why I killed himself. He, he started becoming sick when he was around 80. And um, I think I think he, he didn't take it very well. He wasn't he wasn't severely ill or anything like that. It's not like he was in a wheelchair. He was taking good care of himself. He was always in the garden, in the woods, taking care of the dog, taking care of the shed, you know that kind of stuff. He was always moving around, doing something, and the rest of the day was lying on his couch and enjoying sports on TV or, or politics, which was um, one of his his most endearing hobbies, I would say. And since that day when he was lying for maybe three days in the hospital getting, you know, um, getting, getting diagnosed with a bladder dysfunction or a blockage of some sort, he, for some reason he couldn't urinate. And, and you know, then it, it got fixed, or not fixed necessarily, but there was something wrong with him. It wasn't that severe that he needed to die. It was just a change in his body because he was aging. And I remember one time sitting in the car uh, waiting for, I think, his his daughter, my mother-in-law, uh, picking up medicine from, from a drugstore or from the doctor or prescription, something like that. I was sitting in the car on the um, next to the driver's seat and her grandfather, my ex-wife's grandfather, was sitting behind me. And he said to me in a very dry voice, really convinced, like, you know, telling me, um, I'm not sure if I want to continue like this. This, is, this makes no sense to me to, 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 to keep living if I have to have these kind of physical troubles. And he didn't want to be a burden to anyone. You know, and I turned around and looked at him and said, why would you say that? It's, it, you're not dying. It's just, it's a minor problem that you have. You will get the treatment that you need and everything is going to be fine. There is no need to think of the end of the world now, you know. And he looked at me in a very strange way, like he didn't believe me. And um, for some reason, that, that was, I didn't expect him to actually commit suicide. Why would anyone expect that, you know? But he was, he was just being very logical in that moment, not emotional. That's what scared me afterwards when I found out what, what really happened. And 
coming to you know songs like these, I sometimes remember him because of not necessarily because of the song, but because of the topic um, which this song is based off or based on. It, it sometimes pops back into my head with this old man um, hanging himself, and it's 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 not really haunting to be honest. It's more of the reasoning behind it, why he did what he did, that is um, almost fascinating to me, that he would go as that far. And I remember that he took care of the garden that day before he committed suicide. He went to the into the workshed um, on his property, cleaned everything up, all the tools back in, in place, everything was broomed, everything was tidied and cleaned. And then he, you know, took care of the dog one last time and gave him some food and went out for a walk with him. And it was like he wanted to leave this place tidy and give it in good hands as a last act of kindness. Then he went to his daughter and said, you know, um, it wasn't really his daughter was, you know, my father-in-law was his, his son. But he loved uh, his wife just as much. He was very kind to her on in, in all occasions. And um, he just went to her and said, look, I'm going to go upstairs for a moment. Um, he opened the, the rooftop. There's a, there's a foldable ladder locked underneath the roof, and he just opened it. You know, there's a hatch, so to speak. And he left the ladder down, went up, left it open, and the cats of the, you know, they had many cats as pets and they went upstairs because the attic is always very interesting. So he was in the attic and took his belt and did his thing. You know, he was, he stood on a stool, I think, or on a, on a table upstairs or a cabin, you know, it was much of old furniture sta- uh, standing around so he could actually reach one of the wooden beams on top. And so he did what he did and just jumped eventually and just hang himself or hung himself. That's the way you should say it. In that moment, the cats were hysterical and screamed and and just went berserk, ran through the house. And there was a sound, a very severe one, when someone hangs himself. And I think you, you know exactly what I mean. That's the moment when my mother-in-law back then uh, knew that something happened and went upstairs and saw him, found him like that. So that was a very cold and calculative precisely thought and logically concluded idea to end my life on this and that day. Just like that. Never mentioned it to anyone else. Briefly talked to me about it in the car, which I didn't really understood as suicide back then. He made a very clear uh, um, um, statement, of course, that he was displeased with the development, but he wanted to really consider ending his life. And for the life of me, I would have never suspected that. You know, now in hindsight, I think it's... Look, I met the guy, he was nice. Okay, I remember him as a nice person in my head. Um, I'm glad I met him. I'm not so glad that I married his granddaughter. He, she was a bitch, believe me. But, but, um, but, but her granddad was just a really nice guy. And I will always remember him for that. And that's okay. You know, and... What he did was bad, but if if it if that is what he wanted to do, if that was his decision, well, like I said, there's not really much you can do to prevent things like that. If somebody wants to die, they want to die. 
I'm sure there could have been a different solution. But would he listen? I don't know. He, there wasn't even a note or anything like that. Not a goodbye note, nothing. He just did it and that's it. You know, really persistent for fuck's sake. Amazing. Ah, who cares? It's in the past. People die. That's part of life. And this one was tragic. But, you know, what can you do? Back to the album. I've been talking too much already, I think. Is the recording still running? Yes, it is. And we're over an hour in. Oh, dear Christ. I wanted to end after an hour. I wanted wanted to be shorter and go outside. Eh, well, okay. Um, Mercy Street, yeah. Um, to, to make it short, <laughs> the acoustics, the way the guitar is being softly played as an intro in, into this song, the bass line, if I can uh, recognize it correctly, is beautifully gentle. It carries the track into a form of uh, hypnotic state. That's what I was looking for. It's a hypnotic song, a very ambient-based song. And yes, it's a very sad song, but it's beautifully made, beautifully sung. And the best version to ever surface on the face of the earth was, in fact, the live concert of uh, Live in Athens from 1987, where he was performing on his knees, lying on the ground almost, doing these amazing tongue-tingling cries of help that he performed on stage. It is massively, incredibly, brutally honest when you see and hear that for the first time. It's, it's, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, you know, I don't know what does. That is majestically beautiful. And it is, I've, when I saw that the first time, and I've, I've seen it on videotape years ago, when uh, before Athens was actually published from, uh, you know, 20 years, 25 years later for uh, anniversary reasons, and of course to make additionally some money, I guess, um, the, the, the entire live concert was finally good preserved audio-wise and, you know, polished once again and then brought out on CD. I'm not sure if it's on vinyl. Probably it is. I, I haven't checked really, but... I, I bought the standard version that you can buy, uh, the 25th anniversary edition, with the studio album, um, again, you know, based on the same uh, uh, polished print from 2002. I don't think there's much change from the 2012 version, but it's just um, digitally enhanced and cleaned. It's, it's a remaster, of course by uh, any means necessary and within that album within that package there was the live concert that I always wanted to have because I've seen the videotape once about the the so tour I don't remember what the title was I think point of view it, it was called POV was the videotape yeah now I remember and the best parts were cut out you know but the Mercy Street uh, um, live gig and everything he did the whole drama of that performance is captured still and, and stored on that tape which is beautiful but not the entire performance on stage they mixed that with some additional um, 
shots of him being in a studio, sitting in front of a microphone, shooting him from the side, filming a silhouette of Gabriel's face, and uh, blending that over the image that you saw from the live concert, which was beautiful, and I love that, really. But um, if you want to see the full uncut thing, you know, get yourself the Blu-ray and um, pop it in. It's it's really mesmerizing to watch. And um, I haven't watched it on my silver screen now. That's something I still want to do. Um, watch and listen to uh, the concerts. My stereo system is just fine for that, really. it's Like I said, those speakers are under my bed. I lie on the bed and watch everything from there. Although if you want to dance around and jump around, it's not a good idea to be in bed. <laughs> but just saying, um, Mercy Street is a fantastic song. It's, um, I think, one of the most important songs that Gabriel ever uh, has written over the years. And it is a must listen to to understand the significance of this track on the album. From there, let's keep it short. Um, we have the Big Time uh, um, track, which was also a very successful single. Not as successful as Sludge Hammer, but many people said they like the style, the beat, and the rhythm of Big Time a bit more than Sludge Hammer. Although the music video was also very wild and I think won even a few awards. Um, I like both videos. I think Big Time and Sledgehammer are creatively on par almost, with Sledgehammer being slightly more on the artistic, experimental animation side than uh, Big Time. But Big Time goes almost the same way. Then we got We Do What We're Told. Um, and of course, this is the picture, Excellent Birds, as the last two tracks of the original uh, album concept anyway in your eyes was supposed to be the last but we're, i'm just reading it like it is here from the original uh, 1986 release and um we do what we're told is an interesting track which is again a very typical gabriel song but it is it is based off a study being made of following people or at least following their behavior and moral aspects of following orders, even though those orders are contradictory to what they have learned morally and their conscience. You know, if it, would that work? Would people still follow these orders just, for example, uh, harming someone, a civilian, and killing them, like we have now in Ukraine? So that is what that song is supposedly being, uh, supposedly telling us, that military-wise or just, you know, plain uh, soldier following orders. I'm not making fun of soldiers, nor would I ever. Um, I have great respect for anyone who was in the army, and I'm not saying that for fun, okay? I'm, I'm coming to that maybe some other time in my life, but I know for a fact that if a country is being attacked, that somebody and an organization of some kind, like the military itself military defense forces, they need to protect the country and all those people living there, okay? Somebody has got to do the dirty job. And I personally can't do that. I am too soft for it. I held a gun, a, a small gun, when I was a rifle when I was a kid. My dad showed me how to use it and how to fire it. It was like, I don't even remember the bullets, maybe six millimeter bullets. Um, it was really just small, 
and and it didn't have much of an impact or recoil when you fired it. It was it was okay, you know. For me as a child, it was very fascinating and everything and exciting. And my dad tried to to teach me how important it is to respect weapons because the they were designed to kill, not to just hunt. Hunting is the the the, the cause of inventing these weapons to kill easier, right? That's the inspiration you get. So for a soldier, when they go outside there and use all the guns that they, they, that they can get or they, they have been assigned to or whatever, you know, however it works, um, they're armed to their teeth, preparing to kill because that is what they're supposed to do in times of really emergencies and crisis, not just, you know, protecting the order of things and protecting human lives, but also to kill. That's basically what they're there for. And... Um, Aside from the protection value, I really pull my hat off to every soldier being in the military, being in the army, serving and doing their their duty because that is something I cannot do. And I cannot imagine the kind of stress they go through to actually get there. And I've talked to people who've been in the military, who've actually been in the line of fire, not just in the military doing their, you know, their service for a year or two, like in Germany. And then leave and that's it. You know, that's they, they have done their part. No, I was doing social work instead of military. I wanted, I did not want to join the military because that is just not something I can identify with. I know for a fact that we need the military. Unfortunately, we do. And I'm thankful that they exist. I really, do. I really am. I know war is wrong. I don't like war. I don't empathize war. I don't want to see war. But we all know exactly what the human race is, what we are, not who we are. Who we are is a different picture. What we are is more important to describe the necessity of war. That is a tragic fact, my friends. I know utopia is something that we all uh, thrive for, something that we dream of. But we're not going to get there if we still behave like animals, like some people still behave now in you know creating crimes of unspeakable crimes and and rapes and and murders and destruction and oppression and all that it's it's always it's in our nature unfortunately it is we have the capacity for good yes we do it's true we have the capacity for good but i think the human race has a much larger capacity for selfishness and violence and destruction because it's easier it's easier and it is fulfilling to many not just being good but being evil and that's a problem in our society and it needs to be eradicated somehow or changed and i don't really know how to do that but it's 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 good that we can talk about it you know it's good that we can bring things out into the open to provoke a change and hope that change will come sooner or later but it's always When it comes to that, when it comes to politics, it's such a dirty game. You wouldn't believe the lies being told to people. And I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. We're talking about an album here for fuck's sake. But life is not just black and white. It's not just evil and there's good and there are people who don't like each other. Guns are being fired, bombs go off. It's a lot more complicated than that, believe me. And that's why I think people will never change. 
it's they like it complicated. They like it dirty. They want to maintain power and influence for uh, a, a very important reason, and that reason is unfortunately not disclosed to us. It's hidden. It's not just power. I can I would bet my soul on that. It is not just power. There's something else that is much more important to them. And unfortunately, I think we will never find out what that is. But I'm that's a topic I'd like to address at a, a different point uh, in the future, maybe somewhere between those Gabriel takes. Cuz I'd like to end here with uh we do what we're told and this is the picture cuz um I really got to get out of here. <laughs> I have to go out on my bicycle and explore the world once again. I wanted to, I hope it's warm enough because I'm really looking forward to it. I've got a new cell phone too. I think I told you that. I have a Sony now. I sold the old Blackberry for 400 bucks. I'm glad about that. I can take that money and use it for a different device that gives me pleasure listening to music or taking sometimes pictures because I don't write that much anymore, at least not with people. Because I don't like people. <laughs> so I wanted to take some pictures, you know, and listen to some, uh, one of my favorite um, electronic radio stations and just just enjoy myself on the bicycle, I guess. Today, not so much Gabriel. I think I, there is no music of Gabriel on the phone. But um, the, last, the, the last song on this record is This Is The Picture, which is also, yet again, a very mysterious, um, experimental-sounding, moody Gabriel track, co-written by Laurie Anderson. Now, Laurie Anderson is a fantastic artist. She is really, by definition, an artist, by what she does, by how she presents herself, which is even more interesting. And um, I think that was a good match. I'm not sure how they got together to make that record. Or if it was entirely, you know, her idea, his idea. Maybe they got together to create both this idea of, of writing this this track. But live, you know, listening to this is the picture live is not that good. It's it's a, it's an okay track. It was an opener for um, to introduce the band. That was a concept that I think Gabriel thought of and just going through all the people there and enjoying the presence of being so relevant in the pop industry, you know. Uh, that, I think, should, should be safe. I think in that time, Gabriel wanted to be liked and please more people than actually being uh, a completely independent artist. That's what the So album feels like to me. On the Us album, it was different, but that's also based on different uh, emotional experiences that he had to go through to create that one. Like I said before, and I cannot stress this enough, the Us album is for me personally the best. But nonetheless, the So album is a landmark of a, of a mountain so high that many artists cannot reach. <laughs> I had to say that. This is the picture is a interesting song, and I don't know exactly what that is about, to be honest. I think it's maybe about um, observing people, I suppose. Observing... Uh, uh, observing, not observing, observing social activity, social behavior, I would think, I don't know, but it's just what I think personally, what this song might be about, to analyze human behavior in social structures. And that makes sense to me personally. Um, even if it doesn't, it's something completely different. You can tell me, I'm listening. I'm always listening. 
And, well, the, there is a music video about them where I think they're just sitting on, on a chair somewhere and they move awkwardly to the song's beat, of course, and singing, uh, this is the picture. And it's, it's uh, I like listening rather to these kind of mysterious, moody songs of Gabriel than the most popular ones. It's, it's really his strong suit, I think. Just like I love, 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 don't break this rhythm. And I want to urge you to listen to that track. It is really good. Um, if you don't like it, fine. Um, I understand. It's, 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 it, it sounds a little bit different. But from the arrangement and the sounds that you hear, it is coherent with the style of the So album. So it does belong there. At least in a creative process, chronologically speaking. So, you know, just look out for it. Have a listen to it, have a spin. Uh, something else that I wanted to, to address before um, going over the live stuff. I'm not going to do the live stuff today. It's, it's too late. This podcast is going too long. I might address the live performances a bit later on the Us album, I think. But um, coming to B-sides and songs that were very experimental and not being used for the album, probably for good reason, there is a big-time single where you see on the single there is a shiny red flower with a blue black, a background. Uh, there was a just a pocket sleeve release or a paper sleeve release. I have that one, of course. Um, I think I have it twice. I'm not sure, but I have it once for sure. And that is the big-time single is accompanied by a track called um, Curtains. Yeah, Curtains is a very obscure track. It's actually a lullaby. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was sung or it was more of a rhyme or or a poem of sorts that his mother told him before going to sleep. And he made out of it a very interesting heartbeat type of rhythm um, that carries the whole song before he starts singing... um, let, let me think for a second. I have to recall those lyrics. Um, uh, wait a second. I have to put my brain on pause. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. I'm back. I had to cheat a little bit. I went online and looked for the lyrics. They're very short, but I just couldn't really remember how it starts. And the lyrics go, you know, after this build-up of this this heartbeat rhythmic sound with interesting, scary effects of other instruments being used, maybe even samples of some sort. I don't, I cannot recognize what kind of, uh, what kind of stuff was used here. But it's a very beautiful um, song of probably a child being a little bit afraid of the night. You know, when nighttime comes and you're supposed to rest and shut your mind off and go to sleep. And the lyrics go as forward, they, they go as, as follows. Um, oh, draw the blinds, we can shut out the night. Pull up the blankets, pull the blankets up tight. And there are angels on our curtains, they keep the outside out. And there are lions on our curtains, they lick their wounds, they lick their doubt. That is a beautiful piece of work. That is, when I heard that the first time when I bought the single, I could not believe what I was hearing. 
It is that good. Now, for Gabriel himself, he also said it is a very obscure track, and he, he, uh, there is, there was, I think, two or three people complete fanatics about this track, and they tried to even manipulate polls on Gabriel's website during his live tours um, after the Secret World and Growing Up occurred, and he did like you know some summer warming up tours. And he did a poll online and wanted to know what his listeners would like to to hear him sing on stage, whatever song it might be. It was somebody who tried to manipulate the vote for Curtains to make it the most highest demanded song. He wanted that song live so bad. Unfortunately, I think it never happened. At least I can't remember if that song was ever played live. And if he does that one day, you know, they would go berserk. They would just like piss their pants. For, for stuff like that, because it's 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 um it's a special song. Stuff like this is hard to find, you know, from artists with a, a deeper meaning or just a love play with words, creating moody atmosphere. Not everything is just poppy and glory and glamorous. You know, songs like these need to exist. They need to be there. And if somebody needs recognition to you know, or if not recognition, but if somebody needs. Um, this extra dose of fandom to listen to that song live, then, yeah, I understand that. I understand where that fascination comes from and the joy from expecting such a track uh, being played live. It is, I think you can compare this with a song that he wrote um, about a little boy falling down, a little boy hitting the ground. Uh, I think it's called White Ashes which was played, thankfully, live um, during the Growing Up tour. And that performance is also fantastic. But that's a different song. We're going to come to that sometime later. I want, to, I want to end this recording today. This podcast is done. I thank you for listening to this stuff so long. If you managed to get through here and you're not being bored, maybe I put you to sleep because uh, I heard people saying my voice can do that. Well, then... I wish you good night. <laughs> um, in case you want to explore more music, go ahead. I also like uh, musicals, j- suggestions of all kind. I like listening to other artists and just randomly pick something I find on the YouTube cycle to experiment. And it's usually somewhere around that line, music that is on par, moody-wise or um, with a serious undertone maybe social, critical, that kind of stuff, you know, just putting somewhere, uh, some deep thoughts out there for music that is on par with what Gabriel can do and many other artists can do. And um, yeah, I'm trying to explore more stuff. Anyway, I am going, just turning around, looking at the windows. For the last few days, the skies are completely blue. No clouds, nothing. Amazing. But it's still very cold outside and freezing. It's a dry winter at the moment, but a sunny winter, thankfully. No snow, no nothing, just freezing temperatures at night and lots of lots of sun during daytime. And I'm going out now. I wish you all the best. I hope that you're doing fine. Please be kind to each other. Enjoy life a little bit and go outside if you can. My name is Dean Laxer. It was fun talking to you guys. See you then and take care.